You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. There's another picture that um, has been uh, sticking with me this Christmas season as I've been studying a lot about Genesis uh, and preparing for messages um, as we've gone on in Genesis. And, and, and by the way, today, um, I think it's just my heart to um, look at Luke, uh, chapter of Luke, uh, chapter one, if you want to open up there and, and, and look forward towards Christmas. But the, the picture that has come to mind just over and over and over again uh, over the last couple of weeks has been this one called Mary Comforts um, Eve. And, and so I think at the bottom, if you can see the, the serpent here that's tied around uh, Eve's ankle down here and it, and it makes its way uh, over to, um, to Mary, uh, it just kind of, uh, it speaks about the Christmas that's in Genesis. It speaks about um, the gospel message, which is in the beginning of the whole story and, and threads its way through. Martin Luther says there's no passage of scripture that's more uh, enduring through the, the canon of scripture other than Genesis 3.15. The, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the, it's the first prototype of the gospel. It's the first good news. It's the first instance of God coming to rescue his people. And so what you have on the picture is, a, is a, on, the, on the left-hand side, obviously, Eve. And, and Eve, with all of her, her fruitfulness, there's fruit all over the trees that are making an archway uh, around her and, and, and Mary here. For all of the fruit that's around her, Eve was called the mother of all um, creation. She was, well, she was the mother of all humans in human life. And for all the fruit that she has, uh, she can't produce the promise she can't produce the promise. She can't produce the Genesis 3.15 promise. The, the, the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the snake to an, end and cancel the curse. And so the, the mothers of the Bible, the Rebecca's and the Miriam's and the, and the, um, and the, and the Rachel's and the Leah's, and the, they, they can't produce, they can't produce the fruitfulness for all it is that they want to. And, and so, and so this, this actually isn't just a picture of of Eve, or just a picture of Mary and Eve, it's a picture of us. Um, it's, it's a picture of this, this deep angst that for as much as humans want to um, produce life and, and, to, and to create spiritual health, and everybody here, we all want to have homes that have peace in them, and we all want to have workplaces that are productive, and we all want to go on mission trips and, and see change. And, and so often, as we, as we take steps, sometimes of, of obedience and of faith, we don't see the fruit. We don't see uh, the thing that it is that, that we desire. We don't see the kingdom come. We don't see health. We don't see peace. We don't see joy. We don't see the things that, that we long to see that is, that is promised by God. And that's kind of what I think the, the picture encapsulates. And so I remember um, when, when Kyra and I first had Rose, our first child. We have four children. The oldest is uh, 13. The youngest is three. So we have a good old teens to toddlers dynamic that goes on in our house. Um, and, and I was 21 when we first... Uh, when we had Rose, we were, um, well, actually, excuse me, we were pregnant at 21, and, and we had Rose when I was 22 years old. I remember taking the phone call at Starbucks. I was a barista at Starbucks on Main Street in South Bend, Indiana, and Kyra said, it's a girl, and I said, what? I had no idea. I, I've never, I'm an only child. I never, I just grew up with my mom. I never had sisters, never hung out with girls. Like, I'm like in over my head at this point, point. and I remember, um, you know, going through the process, and we were at St. Joe Memorial Hospital on the seventh floor in South Bend, Indiana, and I remember it was like 4.15 in the afternoon, 
And uh, I really, I had no grid to um, prepare myself for 4.15 in the afternoon on June 6, 2006. And so, um, so Rose comes out screaming and wailing, as all four, you know, uh, coincidentally have done as well. And I, I start bawling. I just start weeping over this thing. And I'm not an emotional person, and I wasn't, like, planning on having some big moment. I don't have, like, music playing in the background. I'm just like, let's get it done. Let's have the baby. You know, I have no idea what's going on between um, perception and reality or expectation and reality. And the thought was just gripping me, I think, at that moment that um, she looks like you, you know? The child comes, and, and they look like you. And, um, and they're so dependent on you. And... and there's all that you want to do and all that you want to prepare and all that you want to read the books and ask the advice. You're helpless. <laughs> You're lost in the whole thing. And there's such a vulnerability in the room that I couldn't have done anything but yet still hear God is good and showing his goodness to me. I don't deserve this trust to take care of this human being, but yet God is still good and he's bringing this trust into this room and he's bringing this life into this room. And so that's what it does. I think that's exactly what, um, if, we're, if we have our eyes open, if we're paying attention, you know, every, every child that's, that's brought in, we, we have a lot of, if you're new here to City Lights, we're having a lot of babies these days, and that's a really wonderful gift. Um, but it's a loud sermon. That's a loud sermon. You can't bring life into the world. Humans can make a lot of stuff. We can send people to the moon. We can, you know, make up all sorts of, um, you know, different architectural things and, 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 and do a lot of great things as humans, but we can't bring life. We can't we can't even sustain life. We can't even sustain our own life. And that's the humbling place, the equalizer of both birth and death is that we don't do it. We can't do it. We can't bring fruit. We can't bring life, you know, into the world. And so I want to read through uh, Luke chapter one. And, and again, for these next two weeks, I just want to, I want to look forward to, towards Christmas. And I have just a simple message at the end of this passage that I, I want to send us out with as we kind of prepare in this last week, you know, before um, the Christmas season. Um, just how we might respond to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, in verse five, it says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and his decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because of Elizabeth, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So if you've been listening, um, we actually took a, a step out of uh, Genesis just now in our first reading after a while. We've been in Genesis for so long, but you can kind of see Genesis still there, right? Some of the words that we have been talking about quite fervently and quite, you know, continuously in Genesis, the word blameless, the word righteous, you know, the, 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 word, the word priest. Um, it's not like somehow from Genesis to Luke, we've stopped talking about these things or that these questions have been answered. It's the same Proto-Evangelium, it's the same storyline thread of like, will there be somebody that gets us to the garden again? And so in that, in that lens, what, what this passage is, is telling us, it's setting us up in the beginning of, of Luke, and there's four different Gospels. This is one of the four accounts uh, of Jesus, obviously. And, and so what this passage has decided to open, open us up with is really it's going to be two parallel images, two parallel storylines of important uh, biblical figures being born, obviously the most important being Jesus, but Jesus says there's no other prophet greater than Moses other than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist and Jesus are both going to be announced, and they are both going to be recognized in tandem, parallel with each other. 
And so the context, the setting of, of John the Baptist, the birth of John the Baptist, who's the son of Zechariah, the priest, and uh, it says that Elizabeth, his wife, who is a, in a lineage of Aaron, what, you're, what we're supposed to be seeing here is um, if there's anybody uh, in this Jewish uh, you know, area that could have been giving birth to Jesus or John the Baptist, these guys were great candidates to do so. They were righteous, they were upright, they were blameless, and these are the design patterns we should recognize from Genesis. That's the calling card of the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Moses. I mean, these were the good people. These were the good guys, okay? And, uh, and also, it, it mentions a level of pedigree there, a, a sense of they were uh, priests in the temple. And Zechariah is actually, when he receives his message that John, his son, is going to be born as this great prophet, uh, he's in the temple serving his priestly duty. And it says Elizabeth uh, explicitly, and the Bible wants you to know this, is of the lineage of Aaron. So these are, these are important people. But then look what it says at the very bottom, verse 7. But then they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And so what you have there in this beginning you know, context of the birth of John the Baptist, the one, uh, they say, cousin of Jesus, or at least relative of Jesus, who points the way. He was the prophet in the wilderness that was supposed to get you know, the, 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 the crowd expecting and ready to shine the spotlight on Jesus. That was his whole prophetic uh, job description. His parents were the best that humanity had to offer. His parents were the, the epitome of what the law had to offer. They were the extreme. They, they were like, like you couldn't have picked anyone with a greater pedigree and a, a greater sense of, um, uh, of, of calling card than these guys. They were priests. They were in the line of Aaron. They were upright. They were blameless. They walked with God. They found favor with God. They were all that humanity had to offer. But what does verse 7 say and show more than tell? Elizabeth was not able to produce. She was not able to produce the promise. She was barren. She was old. And that's not a, a, a new biblical paradigm at all. This was very common, the biblical paradigm for, for a mother, you know, to struggle with fertility and to recognize the ability to have kids. You've got to understand, if you were a mom back then, you weren't just giving birth to the kid that you're going to have to put up with in the living room and maybe or may not, like, wash their dishes. It's like... Your son is going to be your plumber, your roof repair person, your security person. You know, your son is your future, your livelihood, your inheritance. He is everything in your world. And, and it doesn't take much empathy to really reckon, but you would have to multiply and magnify, you know, some of the feelings that we would have as we have children that we hope the best for them and we want well for them and we want them to succeed and prosper and we don't want them to go down the wrong path. But even more so for these people, every mom, there's not one mom as they were nine months pregnant that didn't at least a little bit hope that they were going to give birth to the snake crusher. They were going to get, give birth to at least somebody that was faithful and walk with God. And so when, when, whether it be Sarah or anybody else, it says they're infertile, they're unable to, to bring offspring. There's not just a physical dilemma here, there is a spiritual one. And so, and so then you have this second narrative, this second parallel narrative of a second mom. We'll skip down to verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, now watch the difference here. The pedigree, you know, Aaron's, Aaron's um, lineage, you know, uh, they served as priests, they were upright and blameless. It says nothing of these things for Mary. She has no credentials she has no moral resume. She's just a girl. So watch. It says in verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. That's like, forgive me if anyone here lives in Possum Kingdom, but I might have a, 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 bad, a bad prejudice about it, but, but Galilee was just the town that nobody really passed through a lot, and it was the town that was on the outskirts of town. It was the town that Michael Jordan didn't come from. It was the, just the kind of 
backwoods town out here, okay? And, and so it says, this woman who is out here in Galilee, who is not a, a, a relative of Abraham or a relative of, um, of Aaron or, or a priest of any sort, without any acumen, verse 27, and beyond all of those social norms, physically and biologically, she is a virgin. And so she too will have some problems procuring offspring here. To a virgin pledged to, pledge to marry, to be married, a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And so she is going to be fitting in with the prophetic, you know, expectations of somebody being the, in the line of David. But even in terms of exactation, she's not in the line of David. She's simply betrothed to be married to a guy that's in the line of David, and she's not even married yet. So her credentials are, are not bearing here. It says the virgin's name was Mary, and that says it twice. She's a virgin. She says it twice. Her name was Mary. In verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And so here we see of the two different mothers that are contrasted, that are put in parallel juxtapositions. If we think back to Genesis and Noah and uh, what it says about Noah and what it, what it makes of Noah as somebody that walks with God, there were two things that it mentioned. It said that Noah was upright, he was blameless, he was righteous, and he walked with God. But before all those things, the very first thing that comes about in the biography of Noah is that he found grace and favor with God. And so it needs to stick out to us in the second, the second rendition here of the second mother that becomes pregnant, the second visitation of Gabriel and pronouncement of what's about to change in terms of what God is doing on the earth through human beings, is that um, of all the things that they mention about Elizabeth, the one who has John the Baptist, it's all about the uprightness, the righteousness, the things that Noah was and did. And certainly we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth, if they were righteous and upright, they had figured out a way to walk with God. But that's not what is highlighted in their biography. What is highlighted in Mary's biography is none of the uprightness, none of the actions, none of the diligence and duty and all of the follow-through, but only the grace, only the favor, and this is what should scream loud and clear to us. And so this is what I have as a kind of a, a guiding point at this point in the text. We're supposed to see in this opening presentation of the Gospel of Luke that Elizabeth and Zechariah represent this kind of fullness of maturity of what the Bible calls the law. The fullness. I mean, give somebody everything that they possibly can in the Old Covenant context. Give them the law. Give them grace and favor and let them walk and run as far as they can and the symbol and the metaphor that we find at the end of their ability to procure the promise is they are barren and incapable of accomplishing what God is doing in the world. That, that man without God is not able to do what God can do without man. That the greatest that humanity has to offer can only bring what the greatest thing that humanity has to offer. But Mary in juxtaposition is representing simply a child of grace a person that has found favor. And it's going to say that several times. The angel Gabriel is going to identify so the reader can see why we're looking at Mary in the first place, why Mary has taken the spotlight of this narrative. And the reason is not because she's upright or because she's a priest or because she falls in the right credentials, but simply because she is highly favored, because, she is, because she's loved by God, because, because she has found grace as Noah and Abraham and Moses and so many others have. And so Mary represents grace giving birth, not to what the best man can offer, but now because of grace is offering the best that God can offer and the best that God ever will offer. So this is, this is, the, this is the emphasis. I remember um, uh, when I was in Catholic school, <laughs> there was like 70 kids that were in this whole school. And uh, 
it's probably pretty stereotypical. Um, my math teacher was like, oh, you're Asian, and so um, you're probably going to be really good at this math competition, so we'll sign you up. I had never passed any tests, and my average was like a C. So they sent me down there with, like, little Johnny and little Barry and Billy and all that kind of thing, and I was like, you know, pumping myself up about how we were going to be um, awesome at this, like, district conference with all these other schools, public schools, private schools, all these smart, geeky schools, and I'm like, Believe in my teacher, man. She believes in me, and I'm like, I'm Asian. I got this, you know? So I'm, like, studying real hard, you know? I'm doing the best I possibly can. We go down there. And it was the kind of thing, I don't remember exactly how the rules were supposed to be set up, but basically it was like they add up all the scores that you're supposed to take on this little quiz, and, uh, and like, whoever has, you know, the greatest average uh, of all the scores or something like that in, the, in all the schools, like, wins. So we go and take this test, and, um, guys, I mean... I didn't even know what the directions were saying. I mean, like, the, the stuff that they're giving these, these kids in math, I, I'm almost offended at how much was going on on that test, but it was just parabolas and, and calculus, and I was like 12, you know? And I'm, you know, I just, I'm trying to get to my Dunkaroos at lunch, and, and so we just tanked this test, like, so incredibly bad, you know? And I remember thinking, like, well, maybe, like, maybe my, my Asian genes, you know, took me beyond, you know, the course, and maybe we, we were absolutely dead last. I mean, by, like, the largest margin, we won nothing. There's kids, like, crying with their parents, just hugging. It's bad. It's a, it's a, it's a train wreck out there. St. Catharines of Siena, 1993, not the best math school. So if you ever go to Albany, don't send your kids over there if you're trying to get them into engineering. We did not know what the heck was going on. And uh, I did find out later on that I was not either bringing up the average or bringing down the average. I was just, we were all just so bad that nobody was, and nobody in our school beat anybody else from any other schools. You know, there's like 300 kids and so forth. And so, so this is the, this is the picture we're supposed to get. There's, there is a um, infertility of life for all humanity. That's the picture is that, you know, like how, how, how easily or how um, avidly can humans walk with God on their own? How avidly can they walk and have life and, and see power? How can we, how, how competently can we create peace in our home and see fruitfulness in our work and our labor or do anything without God? And what it's saying is that if you want a picture and a metaphor, then, then consider, consider a, a woman beyond age. Consider a virgin. How hard is it for a virgin to have a baby? That's how hard it is for man to walk with God without grace, without mercy. So it all kind of summarizes in this in verse 29. It says, Mary greatly troubled uh, at his words and wondered, was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It says, the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of God, the Lord most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Um, and so, and so here's, here's, the, here's the actual delivery of this promise from Genesis 3.15 all the way through Malachi, all the way through the New Testament, and even now. This was, this was always the promise. This was always the thing. And, and God, what the story is trying to show us is, is picking this place that has no spotlight and no circle around it and no expectation. Mary isn't fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights in some temple. She is a backwoods woman in the wrong town that nobody knows with no name and no acumen. And she is, she is literally receiving the greatest promise that God has ever delivered. And God is not doing this on accident. God is trying to prove a very loud point, and I think he does it quite well, that, that the life of God, that the, that the resurrection of God, the salvation of God is not coming through any ounce of human strength. It's coming only through the one that will trust, only through the one that will worship. And I remember, uh, speaking of uh, 
small group. This is the second time that it came up, so it must have been an awesome small group as Stephen was sharing during Advent time. One of the other questions that was coming up as we talked about Noah and thought, you know, one of the questions was, why did God have to wait so long? I mean, let's get a picture of the Eve and, and uh, Mary up on the screen again, but why did, why did God have to wait so long for Eve's countenance to be so down? Like, why all the pain, you know? And, and so I, I love in the picture... Um, the years have been good to Mary, is what the picture says to me. And you think about all the women and, and all the men and the children that, that exist. There's 7,000 years. I thought, of, of course you made it 7,000 years, Lord. Like, of course it's 7,000 years between Eve and Mary. And there's such a grace, right? I mean, I, I put this picture up here because it's, it's hard to explain in words, really, the relationship between the promise and the covenant and the delivery of that promise and all that it took and all that it meant to see these verses come to life. It's really hard for me to preach it other than just just to, to, to put, maybe put a picture in front of you and have you consider. But, like, but Mary's speaking to Eve in the picture, like the years have been good to me because God has been faithful. Mary has only 7,000 years you know, of time on her side there, but she's speaking to her in her gaze and in her eyes about the faithfulness of God. And not only the faithfulness of God to protect and promote and defend his people, but the faithfulness of God to call out a remnant of faith that will receive his promise when it's ready to be delivered. I love how she, she takes Eve's hand and puts it on her belly. I mean, we need friends like this, don't we? That aren't ready just so quick to give us an opinion about what we need to do and how to fix our problems and how to try harder to bring about life we can't bring about. What is, what is Mary's only gesture to Eve? It's to take Eve in the painting. It's to take Eve's hand and put it on her belly and just say, just trust. If there's anything I could tell you in 7,000 years of, 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 of covenant life with God, it's just trust him. This is what he's trying to get, get to happen. Just trust him. Trust him, and, and he, will make your, he, will, he will make your countenance glow like the noonday. He will make you to, to shine brightly in the generation. He will, he will show victory to you. Maybe it's not in the timeline and the way that you want, but he will, he will bring about his covenant promise. I mean, if there's anything that Mary has to offer, it's not wisdom, and it's not strategy, and it's not you know, prowess or anything else. It's just the, it's just the kind of... It's just the kind of life residual effect of living life in trust with God in the desert, in the years in Babylon. This is the, what's, what's in Mary's gaze. And she takes, she takes Eve's hand and just puts it and just says, just trust. And so I think that's the answer. I think, why does God allow for the Testament to go on for 7,000 years? And I think this is the answer. I think that the answer is because it took 7,000 years to empty man of all of its hope and everything else. And that's how stubborn we are. How stubborn are people? We're 7,000 years stubborn. And if anything, Eve or Mary's trying to say to Eve is just, just give up on the hope of the other things. Just, just, give, just give up on that stuff. It's not going to produce offspring. It's not going to produce life. You can't do it on your own. It's not going to be because you have a better strategy. And I, and I wonder if you look at this picture, if Mary would have some words probably for us, right? Like we really do think if we get up 15 minutes earlier, that the 15 minutes earlier is going to, you know, make us more focused for the day. And now that I make my bed, it's going to set my habits in a row. And so now we're all going to end up with my dreams. Like that's, and so we spend 40, 50, 70 years at least doing that stuff. Oh, that didn't work out. And so like, I'm going to um, start giving more money at the end of the year. You know what I mean? Or, or I'm going to start um, saying, you know, bless you when I see strangers in the street, like as though the strategy is the thing that brings life. And so here, like, here's the thing I think this message preaches to us so loudly. There has to be an indelible line within our spirit and our heart if we're gonna ever see any life in and around our, our, 
our life. We have to make a, an uncompromising line between what is good and what is God. Because ultimately, it's like reading the scriptures daily and loving people daily and caring for our spouse daily and, and asking how can I serve you daily and apologizing quickly and, and turning towards God and these types of things. These are all wonderful, good things. But at the end of the day, none of those can produce life. What the scripture is trying to tell us is, is like a virgin can produce a baby, so our works can produce grace. This is what the message is, is, is trying to show without telling, for, for 7,000 years. Will we hear the 7,000-year message that Mary has to bring to us? It will not come from what we are doing. It can only come from who we are trusting. It's the only salvation there is. And this is, what our, this is why it's taking so long. You might be asking yourself this question. Why, God, why is this taking so long? Why are we not in the Swamp Rabbit property as a church? Well, if God wastes no time, then he's using it for something. And if the only direction that matters is are we heading towards God, then he is using every moment of our, of our time and wasting none of that time to empty ourselves of any other hope except for him. That is the purpose of all time. That is the purpose of all waiting is to make us less and less reliant on our, our own ability to produce life and offspring, to produce spiritual life and actual things that matter and fruit that lasts and fruit that remains. And so, I mean, this is kind of my, my simple message um, for you today, let me just read through the passage to get a continuity. But verse 35, it says this, The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come to you. Oh, let me back up. Probably the most important verse in the whole thing. Mary says what we should be saying anytime Jesus does anything in our life. Anytime we ever see forgiveness and anytime we ever see a child, you know, that we're trying to raise, like follow. Anytime we see, you know, orphans and a missionary coming to know the Lord. Our, our response should be this. Verse 34, how will this be? And the problem is, a lot of us are more like Zacharias. You just want to talk when God is saying things and disagree with him. That's not Zechariah, who was made, he was John the Baptist's father who, who speaks back to God and doesn't believe God. And, and so his, his voice is made mute, a lot like our voices when we aren't trusting in God. It kind of, we do things and we say things and it doesn't produce any life. But, but Mary is the voice that we're supposed to be looking at. In verse 34, this, this is our response on Christmas or there's, or we're not responding the right way. How could this be? This is the question that we need to respond with when we think of putting our hand on Mary's belly and seeing the promise fulfilled. How could, how could this be? For I am barren, for I am but a virgin, for I am sinful, for I am helpless, for I am hopeless, for I am a doubter, for I am a sinner, for I am addicted, for I am shamed, for I am of the wrong lineage, of the wrong background, of the wrong upbringing, of the wrong socioeconomic status. Like our continual prayer, if we really are seeing God and what he wants to do in our life, the continual prayer needs to be, how can this be? And the, and the Spirit just simply says, it's the Holy Spirit. He's going to overshadow you. Do you live a life? Are, are you looking back on 2019 as an overshadowed life? A life where his voice was louder than yours? A life where he did it and not you? That's how we measure time. That's how we measure if, if the year had its purpose established, if his promise was being delivered, not whether or not something awesome happened per se, but really more, did he overshadow you this year? Did his power, did his will, did it overshadow you? Did you live a life according to your plan, according to his voice? And did you trust him? And if you did, and that's success, I don't care how bad it ended up and how the bottom line, how the bottom line landed, you're highly favored. You have grace with God today, and, and, and it is his doing that we are overshadowed today. 
as we trust him. It says, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Maybe that's what Mary says to Eve. No word from God will ever fail. Did you get a word from God in the garden? I don't care if it was yesterday that thing's coming true. I don't care if it takes 7,000 years it's coming true. No word from God will ever fail. Hopefully you've learned that in 7,000 years. 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May your words be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. If there's one thing that I would, I would challenge us to, you know, as a church in the next couple weeks as we think about Christmas, um, I want to challenge you uh, for this Christmas for 2019 to, to walk through the next whatever it is, 15 days, spending as much of your heart and as your time this Christmas worshiping. That's what I want to challenge you to. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to, to move forward into this holiday season and just tell yourself the preoccupation of my, like right now, like just decide, just decide right now that the preoccupation of my heart for the 21st and the 22nd and the 23rd and the 24th and the 25th is to, just to worship. That's my only expectation, God. I think that so often there's such a overpromise under deliver for the holiday season, that relationship that we have with the holidays. And I would guess that if you weren't intentional, you're actually thinking about like a lazy boy right now or, or maybe like a pie that you're excited about. Like your expectation, I, I would guess if we asked you and took an inventory, there, there's like somebody coming home and there's a moment that you're excited about, you know? And there's a present maybe you're excited to give or, you know, you have these expectations. And this is why we get so flustered and stressed out, honestly, because anytime you have an expectation that's not met, you know, that's really where we get frustrated and we get ugly. But that's what it is, like, we have this, this Christmas expectation. It's so funny in our, in our culture, in our country, like, man, you could grow up in a church and in a family and, like, never really spend any Christmas devoted to worship, right? Like, I'm, I'm having a hard time even thinking in my 35 years if I really would say that the number one priority, like, my number one priority is, man, I'm so glad to get off of work, and I'm so glad to get a minute with my spouse. Man, I'm so glad to have the kids home. I'm so glad to like get this present. I'm so glad to like get my bonus or whatever it may be. There's always these like Christmas expectations like I deserve this and this is what I'm looking for. Man, what if the expectation was just I'm just here to worship this, this Christmas? What if the expectation is like I, I'm going to find as many little moments as I possibly can and figure out how God put them there and then give him, give him glory and praise and give him worship. This is the expectation. Like I'm going to I'm going to expect that I don't own the itinerary for the menu and what's going on in, in my house and around my, my family and my kitchen table. And I'm going to wait for somebody who, who, who is going to inspire a generous impulse out of me, and then I'm just going to give it before I even know what happens to me. I'm just going to give this Christmas. Like, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if, if we looked at this time the way that it's intended to be as not a season of rest, but a season of worship. A season to seek, a season to look, a season to, to admire, to have un wonder and awe. And I wonder if that just keeps our hearts safe. I wonder if that keeps our hope alive. I wonder if that's the, the real reason. Because honestly, you know, a lot of Christmas messages, they open up with things like, I know that there's people in the room that are struggling to get through Christmas. And it's difficult because it represents, instead of a season of joy, a marker of disappointment. And that's actually true. But actually, here's my thing. I wonder if if that person is actually more on the brink of recognizing the hope of Jesus than anybody else is in the room who's looking forward to their presence and the turkey and the ham and the things that they're excited about, maybe that is the real Christmas Eve of Christmas and the soil by which that God wants to give birth to something. Maybe they're closer because of their hopelessness. You see what I'm saying? 
Maybe he's exhausting us and maybe he needs to put us in the place that I'm not expecting anything except for the coming Savior and that's enough for me. That's enough for my joy. That's enough for my peace. I'm going to kind of um, invite the band to come forward um, for just a final refrain here. But I want to encourage you to worship this Christmas. And, and this is the first worship song that is directly written about Jesus. Mary is going to write uh, what scholars call the Magnificat. It's a fancy word for a hymn or a song that Mary writes. And, um, and sometimes we read it as Americans and we think Mary's like Cinderella. Like She's like, oh, I'm so thankful that I'm the fairest one. And now God has chosen me because I'm the fairest of Galilee. And I'm thankful that I have Jesus in my womb. And, and, and it's just so hard for us as Americans to really conceive like she is worshiping and praying not as an individual who feels like she has won something, but she is praying on behalf of not only Israel, but all of humanity. And her prayer is actually our prayer. Her prayer back, back then is actually our prayer right now. And Mary, Mary has been anointed, really, and, and called out in these pages by angels and other things as giving the proper response of Christmas. And maybe these words are louder to us than twas the night before Christmas. Maybe this is the prayer and the poem we read to ourselves on Christmas Eve. Maybe this is what worship is about. It says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. All these passages, man, they're thick with David and, and Moses and just songs. I mean, this is just a, a, a packed um, remix of, of psalms and, 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 and a, a chronicle of all of the worshipful moments that have happened from Eve until Mary. Mary's, Mary's not just praying for herself, you know, as she goes to sleep that night. She's praying for all of humanity and all of history and all of the Jewish lineage. She says, my soul glorifies. This is the ache of humanity, and this is what humanity would say if it would understand. My soul glorifies. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And God, we just receive you right now. I'm just going to pray through some of these lines, but we receive you this Christmas as the one who has come near to the lowly. We receive you as the one who makes us say, how can this be? The one that has brought fruit to the fruitless, who has brought life to death, the one who has brought the impossible thing into the impossible situation. That's what this is about. And we just let that sit. We rest in that, Lord Jesus. It brings us a peace because we don't have to go or be anything to have the greatest gift. We have it right now, God, that we wouldn't try and go fight and buy something we already have. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, he's done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And we just thank you, Lord Jesus, that it doesn't say those that do the right thing and those that have the right pedigree and have shown up to church every 52 weeks know that anyone that would call on him, that would recognize him, and that's the great mystery of, of the gospel is that you have just opened the doors of abundance to the one that would just call on your name, the child that would trust you. You would look past the Elizabeths and the Zacharias to go to the one in the town that nobody knows of. That's, that's who you are. That's who you decided to open up your gates to, is to, to anybody that would, would call. It's a scandalous picture, a scandalous picture 
that you would skip over the one who has labored and toiled for years and years and just go to the one who trusts. And God, that you would find us trusting that we would receive that gift. Verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised our ancestors, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And so Jesus, we close uh, this time. We're gonna respond with just um, one refrain from a song as we close, but we just acknowledge through these pages and we remind ourselves, we thank you for your scriptures that continually remind us that it is about your promise. It is not about our pedigree. It's not about our abilities. It is about your promise. And if God said it, then it will be accomplished. Has any of God's word fallen void? That's exactly, that's exactly what the angel encourages Mary with and what he encourages us today, what heaven encourages us. We, we trust in your word. We trust in your promise. That's where we look. That's where we're trusting. That's where we are wanting to be found worshiping this Christmas. We just respond to you today in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.